Hi there, my name's Jeff. I'll be bringing you the second reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 39 on the screen or in your pew Bibles. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love, toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Our friends, um, do keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 10. It is always an amazing, humbling privilege to open up the Word of God because each time I come up here, God has already done his work in my own heart as I reflected, prayed, prepared this passage and, 
And certainly my prayer is that God will do his work in our hearts. So let's pray and we'll consider this passage. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider your word, the living word, what we need to learn, teach us, what we need to hear, help us hear, where we need to change, we pray, Lord, by your spirit, you will change us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder whether you've heard of the phrase or the saying, you never know how good you have it until you lose it. Heard of that? And I think that phrase is true on, on many levels. Last uh, school holidays, which feels quite a long time ago, during the first week, my wife Yvonne, she took her, our daughter, it's not just her daughter, our daughter Esther to the city overnight, stay in a hotel. They had some quality mother-daughter time, so they got to spend a night out in the city, enjoy themselves, eat out. But what it meant was that dinner at home was up to me. And so the survival of the remaining kids was up to me. And that saying was so true. You never know how good you have it until you lose it. And it was true that night. What are we going to eat, kids? Our survival. Well, we went out and we got saflaki. Now, the second week of the school holidays, this time Yvonne took Caleb overnight. So some quality mother-son time. They went to the hotel. They went out. They, they enjoyed steak that night. And what happened again that evening? Well... Their survival, the remaining kids, was up to me again. And that phrase, you never know how good you have it, Yvonne's cooking so good, until you lose it. And so that night, what we did, we went out for soft lucky again. <laughs> and we survived. Now, of course, that's just my incompetence. But isn't that a true statement? You never really know how good you have it until you lose it, until it's gone. And so we take for granted the things we have, but we shouldn't. You know, even, for example, being able to run, being able to taste food, being able to eat anything you like, being able to hear and see clearly. I mean, these normal good things of life, we can take for granted, but you never really know how good you have it until you lose it, until your, your knees start hurting and you can't really run, until you're put on some crazy diet like, I don't know, vegetarian diet, and, and you can't eat meat. You know, that is tough going. Or until you start losing your sight. I've got glasses now, reading glasses, but I never wear it. I'm sort of in denial. I do not want to be an old person yet. Or, or you might start losing hearing. You never know how good you have it until you lose it. But it is especially true, especially true when it comes to the things of God. When it comes to the things of our salvation what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, we have to realize how good we have it so that we do not squander it, so that we do not throw it away, so that we do not lose our grip on it. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Because you see, everything's at risk. You can lose it all. And so what we're going to see here, very simply, first, know how good you have it. Second, don't lose it. And so firstly, how good do we have it? Well, that's how the author of Hebrews begins this section. He has spent pretty much the first 10 chapters telling us that Jesus is not just good, or Jesus is not just better, but he is the best. And so you want rest. I mean, have a break, have your Sabbath, but you want real rest? Well, Jesus is the best. He gives you eternal rest. 
You want a priest. You want someone to connect you to God. Well, you might have your human priests of the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, but Jesus is the best. He's the great high priest. He's the one who brings us to God himself. You want to have access to God. Well, Jesus is the best because where is he now? In heaven, seated at the right hand of our Father in heaven. You want your sins to be completely, utterly cleansed, removed, taken away. Well, Jesus is the best. Animals cannot do that. Jesus is the perfect final sacrifice. He's the best. Ten chapters of Jesus is the best. It was quite hard going, but in a sense quite simple. Jesus is the best. And so he's trying to help us see by this point how good you have it as Christians. Know how good you have it. And it's why he begins here. Have a look at verse 19. He begins with the word, a very important word, therefore. It means in light of all that he has spoken of already in 10 chapters, in light of all of that, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence... Note that it's stated as a fact. We have confidence. Don't, don't, don't be soft about this. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. It's confidence, boldness, fearlessness. You see, in the Old Testament, there was absolutely no confidence at all in coming into the presence of God and feeling safe. Not at all. In fact, it was only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement And only after he had sacrificed a bull for his own sins was he able to enter, but there was no confidence. He would have been in dread and terror. You see, to come into the presence of God is always filled with dread and terror. I mean, just think about even human rulers, powerful rulers of the ancient world. I mean, I think of Chinese emperors. Chinese emperors, powerful. They were seen like a god. If you're a a commoner from the village, from the town, you were not allowed to see the face of the emperor. And so if the emperor were to go around through the streets with his procession and all that, you have to be on your knees. You have to be kowtowing. And even if you were to accidentally lay your eye on the face of the emperor, you'll be gone. You're dead. Not just you, two generations gone. You see, how would anyone then be allowed to come into the presence of any powerful person, an emperor, in the middle of the night? to ask for a glass of water and not be killed and feel safe. Who? Well, if you're the son or daughter of the emperor. You see, that's a type of confidence we have with God. Anytime, anywhere. And so do you see how good we have it? Access not just to a human ruler, but the king of the universe. And I wonder for us as Christians, those of us who believe, how often we fail to appreciate how good that is anytime, anywhere, and we take it for granted. I mean, out of the billions of people in the world, who is it that has access? Billions of people, who has access? Who gets direct access to God? I mean, just the other week, a couple of weeks ago, I emailed the principal of my kid's school just to say something to encourage him. Do you think I had direct access to the principal, his personal email? Not at all. It was a generic one. I'm sure it would have gone to his receptionist first before it went to his executive assistant. And they're probably weighing up, do we want the principal to see this? Do we want this to go to his inbox at all? You know, do we want him to waste his time? 
But eventually he did, and he responded. You see, even for a school principal, it took quite a few steps. But here we are talking about God, the God of the universe, who gets direct access to God anywhere, anytime. You and me. You and me. Those of us who trust in Jesus, do you see how good we have it? And that's the only reason why it makes sense that he now exhorts us the three let us. So have a look. The three let us. It's not let me singular. It's important to remember that. It is let us plural. Firstly, let us draw near in faith. Second, let us hold fast to hope. Third, let us consider how to love. Now, do you notice, do you notice the three virtues there of Christian living? Faith, hope, love. And so firstly, let us draw near. And it is a privilege that we can. I mean, it would not make sense at all for, for the writer of Hebrews to encourage us to draw near if we can't. That would be just cruel. It will be a bit like you know, saying to the kids, let's go to Disneyland. Let's go. The only problem is we don't have a ticket and we can't afford it. I mean, how cruel would that be to your kids? You know, try that. Let's go. But we can't go. But, but that's not the case here. We can go because it has been paid for. The ticket has been purchased. Let's go. And so verse 22, the first exhortation. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Which means here, there is a right manner in which we come near to God. We don't come near as though we own the place, we own heaven, we can strut around like we're some punk or some spoiled brat. Not at all. God is still God. And so we come with a sincere heart, which means it's a true heart. It's a trustworthy heart. It's a heart that recognizes, I do not deserve to be here at all. I do not deserve to be in the presence of Almighty God. But your son Jesus said, I can. And I trust him. And that's because of what Jesus has done. Such that when God looks at us, who does he see? He doesn't see our filth, our history, our baggage, but he sees someone who is clean. I mean, just think about just washing, cleaning. You know, all of us, COVID, a couple of years ago, we've all become very good at washing our hands. We, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to wash stuff. At the end of the, each day, we all know what it looks like to have a shower, to wash the filth of the day. But, but how do you go cleaning something that is not outside, but inside? How do you clean that? When it's deep within, our conscience is weighed down. Our soul feels dirty. How, how do you clean that? Do you know Shakespeare... Shakespeare's Macbeth. Esther reminded, my daughter reminded me of this line recently. She's far more cultured than I am. She said, uh, she told me, after Macbeth kills King Duncan, there's no reading of that guilt. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, they were racked with guilt. They were so, so entrenched in all that, all, all that they did. And the line is, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. You see, the, the cleansing needs to be skin deep. 
And how do you clean skin deep, deep within our souls, our conscience? Well, it's not soap and water. What does it take? As we've been hearing over the last few weeks, it's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Verse 22, have a look. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and to have our bodies washed with pure water. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, do just that. Draw near to God, you, me, in such a way and know how good it is. And his second exhortation, let us now hold fast to the hope. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. You see, this is unique for us. Out of the billions of people in the world, it is unique for Christians, only Christians, that you can have such hope. And do you know at what point in life you see that hope so abundantly clear? Do you know when? It's at a Christian funeral. You see, it's very human to hope. Very human. We all hope all the time. We hope for all sorts of things. We hope for things to be better. And at funerals, you, you hear a lot of cliches. You know, you hear people say, oh, he's up there looking down upon you, or he's gone to a better place. And, but what certainty do you have of such a hope? How can you be so sure? Because they may just be empty platitudes. And so why can we, you and me, why can we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess? Well, it's not because we've got a tight grip. It doesn't depend on how strongly we hold. But verse 23, look at it. For he who promised is faithful. It's dependent upon God. What God says, he will do. What God promises, he will fulfill. This past week, I visited one of our members who who is grieving the passing of his son. What do you say to a man who is in grief? You can't say this, can't you? You can't say this, that there is hope for those who die in the Lord. There is hope. Grieve, mourn. You have to do that. But remember that your grief is not without hope because of the resurrection life. And so again, do you see how good we have it. Can you feel it? How good we have it as Christians. And so we hold fast to the hope we profess. Not because we have a tight grip, but because God is faithful and he's got a tight grip on us. And lastly, the last exhortation. Let us consider how we are to love. I mean, this is now where the rubber hits the road. Because the difference now is not just us personally and individually but it is us collectively it's to impact the church us together it's meant to make a difference here to us St. Stephen's and this is the famous why you should prioritize church passage verse 24 have a look let us plural let us consider how we plural may spur one another. The word is to provoke one another. It takes effort, it takes intention toward love and good deeds. What it's saying is, we need each other to be better. We need each other. We're saved not to be solo Christians as individuals who get on with our lives on our own. Not at all. 
That was not God's plan, not God's design. God saves us to be in community, to be a family, to be a church, to be his church. And I guess isn't that what we really love about our church family? We've got many generations here, multi-generation, multi-ethnic, everyone in between. It's what we really love and what we value and cherish. You see, we need each other to be better by God's command, not our idea. I mean, just think about how you personally learn to love. How do you learn to mature and grow as a Christian? Do you do that best alone? Or do you do that best in community? Just think about that. You see, it's when you're in community that you learn to love. Why? You've got people to love. The opportunities are there. There's the one, the brother, sister struggling. I can love. But in community, you also learn to model from those who love so well, who are so gracious and generous with their time and efforts and service. But it's also in community where you learn to love what love is meant to look like. You see, it's easy to love when, it's, when the other person's lovable. But in community, you have to learn to love those who are harder to love, more difficult to love. You know that, that person who, who's a little bit irritating? Not that there's anyone like that here, but you have to love. That person's my brother, my sister in the Lord. You see, to love your own household at home, it's a given. But in Christian community, we are called to love one another, to spur one another, to provoke one another. We must love each other. You see, Christian maturity happens in Christian community. You want to mature as a Christian? It happens in Christian community. Christian maturity happens in Christian community. And so what this means then is that when we do meet, there is a clear purpose. For sure, we come to worship God. We are to worship God now. But it is bound up, it is connected to us spurring one another on. So how do I worship God? Yes, of course, I sing, I praise Him, I pray. Of course I do that. But also connected to that is loving and encouraging my brother and sister in the Lord. It's connected. You can't have one without the other. If I say I'm here just for God and neglect my brother and sister, then I fail to obey this passage. But of course, I need to say, those of you who are you know, not yet a believer, you're still exploring, those of you who are new to our church and you're just considering this place, we are glad you are here. And for some of you, each Sunday, it's in fact quite a victory just to get to church. You know, thank you for being here. But for the rest of us, those of us who have been a Christian for a while, I call myself a disciple. Jesus is my Lord. But if my attitude to the gathered community, the gathered family of God, the gathered people of God is, it's okay. You know, I can come late. I will leave early. I show no encouragement or love to those sitting around me whatsoever. I don't even know the names. Who cares? Well, this passage should challenge you. It has to challenge you if you want to obey it. Listen to what this pastor from California said. He said, A church is a communal gathering of the people of God, not simply a consumer experience for like-minded individuals. What that means is that 
the church is meant to be like a home, not a shopping centre, not Chadston, where I just come, I pay my dues, I get what I want, and then I leave. And I don't care about whoever else is there. That is not church. Now, for the recipients of this letter, they were experiencing persecution. That was why they were withdrawing. That was why they were staying away from church. They were being persecuted for their faith. Today, in our context, we're not experiencing what they're experiencing. We're not persecuted to the point where to come to church means you're in trouble. Not at all. Today, we have different reasons for why people withhold, stay back. Various reasons, other priorities, whatever they might be. Parties, just like what we saw in the kids' talk. Parties, or it might be work, or sports, or studies, whatever, you name it. But the exhortation remains the same. That is, don't let it become a habit. Of course, it's a community of grace. God is gracious. There are exceptions. But don't let it become a habit. Look at verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And that last verse there. Don't forget that. Our life is not like as long as we wish. Jesus is returning. It is worth reflecting on, isn't it? If I find that I'm alienating myself from the people of God, could it be a sign that I have already alienated myself from God himself? If I find it difficult to bring myself to worship with the people of God, is the problem the church or is the problem really my relationship with God? It's why very often the first sign of drifting is withdrawing from fellowship. And so we're meant to read and think from this passage. How good we have it. Though we're being convicted and challenged, but how good we have it because God in his wisdom knows that we cannot do Christian life alone. And what has God done? He's given us the church. He's given us each other. Just as I encourage you, you encourage me and us each other. It's how we keep each other on the straight and narrow. So the first big point, remember and know how good you have it. Which means then, the second point, don't lose it. As simple as that. You know how good you have it? Don't lose it. Otherwise, you don't know how good you have it until you lose it. And that's the point of the rest of this passage, which I won't spend as long on. And it makes two big points in this second part. You lose it if you keep on sinning. That's the first one. If you keep on sinning. And you lose it if you throw it away. As simple as that. And so the first point is very clear. If we keep on sinning, of course you lose it. And this is not just you know, the, the, the sin that we be, become aware of. We feel guilty and we repent. Not, not talking about that. It is talking about deliberate, persistent unrepentance it's a type of sin you go in with your eyes open and you can't blame anyone else you have to take responsibility and ultimately it's a sin of rejecting jesus as the only savior look at verse 26 
if we deliberately keep on sinning, that is persistent sin, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is about God and Jesus and the gospel, no sacrifice for sin is left. It makes sense. If we want to reject Jesus, is there going to be another saviour? Well, not at all. There is no other saviour. There is no other sacrifice for sin. It's why I really love the lyrics of the song we sometimes sing, Yet Not I. There are two lines. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? What gift of grace? He's God's gift to us. There is no more for heaven now to give. Don't you just love that line? God has expended himself. There is no more for heaven now to give. If God has already given us his son, what more can he give? And so if we reject the son, there is nothing left. Nothing left. Heaven has given its all already. And so this warning is particularly important. It is particularly important for those of us here who know the gospel intellectually. It makes sense. It's rational. It's reasonable. But you've never really embraced it spiritually or wholeheartedly. It's a warning to you. It's also a warning to those of us here who may be drifting. And you probably know in your own heart whether you are or not. And it's also a warning to those of us who grew up in a Christian family, and particularly the younger ones, and you just assume the gospel without taking hold of it for yourself. You see, to reject Jesus in any way, it's all lost. It's all gone. And you see how severely he puts it here. No mincing of words. Verse 29. It is to trample the Son of God underfoot. It's like you see Jesus and you step on him. Verse 29, it is to treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. It's saying the blood of Jesus, so what? Not precious, just like sewage, who cares? And it is also to insult the spirit of grace. You see, it is an offense. We might think it's a neutral thing. Believe Jesus, not believe Jesus? No. It is an offense to God himself when Jesus is rejected. And what is left? What is left? Well, to the modern ear and to, I suspect, many churches today, we don't like to talk about judgment because it just sounds so judgmental. But I'm not sure how you can get around this. Verse 31. Read it with the weight of the words. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You cannot soften those words in any way. They are words of judgment. And so know how good you have it so that you don't keep on sinning. And the second part of this, don't throw it away, verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. To throw away means to, to fling, to cast away as rubbish. To, to throw away that confidence, that boldness, it's in fact the same word, that word confidence. It's the same word that's used as at the beginning of our passage. You know, the confidence to enter into the most holy place. It's that same word. And now I'm throwing it all away. I no longer want it. And what is left when you throw it all away? 
or nothing good. Verse 38, if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. We face the displeasure of God. And the warning is clear, isn't it? We have it so good, so, so good. Don't lose it. Do not lose it. Why throw it away? God is so, so good. Mark Jones, in his book that I found extremely helpful about the attributes of God, he said, As we reflect on such an expression of God's goodness, we must also be moved by the fact that the one who, for no reason, merited divine wrath, received what we deserved. Amazingly, for a time, Christ received more wrath and we more love. Do you see how good we have it? In that moment, on the cross, Jesus received more wrath and us more love. Why would I ever throw that away? And that's why this passage ends with the confidence. We cannot. We cannot shrink back. We cannot walk away from Jesus. Verse 39, our last verse. And we, that is us, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believed and are saved. And so the question is, is that us? Those who will never, ever shrink back. And so let me ask you, if you, in your heart of hearts, you know Jesus is your Lord, you call him your saviour, you're a disciple, in your hearts reflect, do you really, really know how good you have it? Do you really know? Do you really appreciate all that Christ has done for you? You see, this passage has a challenge, has something to say to each and every one of us individually. But it also has something to say to all of us collectively, individually. If we know what Hebrews has been talking about for 10 chapters, what a cosmic privilege, what an honor it is, how good it is that you and me, we can approach God Almighty, the most powerful one in the universe, with boldness, confidence, without any fear that God will smite us. And if I can do that, and I can come to him again and again and drink from the inexhaustible wellspring of his love, why would I settle for anything less? How can I not just bask in that? It's like God's love is as wide and as deep and as vast as the ocean. But I'm just settling for a little sip from a small glass. I mean, why would you do that? Know how good we have it. Because how good we have it was not cheap for us to have it. And I wonder whether as we you know, reflect on this passage, and you know, this is a challenge, reflect on our own lives as you observe mine, and I look at yours and us to each other, do you think our lives will reflect a love and a desire and a life that is consistent with this. As you look at my life and as I look at yours, do we see a life that says, I really know 
how much Jesus has done for me. I know how much it cost him, and I will not take it for granted. I cherish my communion with God. And I love my Savior so much because he loves me so. Is that obvious? Is that clear in our lives, in your life, in my life? Or will we find as we look into each other's lives, will we find, I come to God only when I'm in need. When times of trouble come, I come to God, I'll pray. I'll ask for prayer at that point. Or I say to God, not out loud, but I say, God, you get one and a half hours each week at church and make the most of it. That's all you get. The rest of the week is mine. But then Jesus is up there and he's saying, I gave everything so that you could have everything. So how does our life line up personally? But then also us collectively. Do we actually know? Do you know? I certainly feel this way. How good we have it as a church. How good we have it here at St. Stephen's. Now we're not claiming to be perfect or the ideal church or anywhere close to that, not at all. But God has blessed us and has blessed us here. See, God continues to work in this world, to win this world, and it's done through the local church just like us and the many other churches around the world. And we need to remember the church is not to be taken for granted. We're not a shopping centre. St. Stephen's is not Chadston. So don't treat the church like a shopping centre. Don't come to church, I pay my dues, I take and I go. Don't take the church for granted. Because what is the church? They are the people, the precious blood purchased people of Christ. To take advantage of the church, to take it for granted, is to take the people of God for granted. We're not here for a consumer experience. We're not Chatson. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And we don't want to miss out on being the blessing to others. The great blessing it is that we can be a blessing to others. That always just blows my mind that who am I? Frail, weak, but God would use me to be a blessing to someone else. Don't miss out on that blessing. And remember the exhortation of our passage. It is not let me, but let us together. You see, there's such joy when we put into practice this passage. And so then the question is, how much do you make in your life a priority of how good it is that we can meet as the people of God? Is church family, church life important to you? Is it a priority? I mean, for those of us who are new to the Christian faith, you have to come to learn this because you've come into a family. But let me ask you, how do you normally arrange your week? We all get seven days, same number of hours, same number of days. Does it revolve around the gathered people of God? That is the priority, and I work my week around that. Or does it revolve around 
my social calendar or whatever other priority. Church is here, Sunday's coming, but if I get a better offer, I'm off. Because let me say here, say here we always reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Those of us who are parents, if we do not raise our children with the priority of gathering with the people of God, and if I don't do that, I cannot expect them to have that priority when they become adults and get their own freedoms. You see, God knows how fickle we are. And I suspect we all know people who once were committed. They said they were committed to Jesus, but have drifted away. Those who have shrunk back, those who have thrown away their confidence. Why did God give us each other? It's here. We need to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's not lose it. Lose that perspective. Because you see, in life there will be all sorts of seasons. Some of us are in seasons of sorrow. Some of us are in seasons of joy and celebration. But consider all the seasons of life. When I'm weary, who will be there to encourage me to persevere, to press on? When I'm disappointed, who will be there to remind me that God has not stopped loving you? It's okay. When I'm downcast, who will be there to pray for me, to encourage me? Bring your worries, your burdens upon the Lord and he'll take it for you. When I'm racked with guilt and shame, who will be there to remind me the cross of Christ is enough? When I'm in grief, who will remind me of the eternal hope? Who? Who? If it's not you, to one another. So know how good you have it. Know how good we have it and not take it for granted. And so let me ask you then, do you know in your heart of hearts how good you have it? Because you see, for it all to happen, Christ went out alone. Christ stood alone. Christ bled and died alone and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment he experienced more wrath so that we could experience more love, so that we can have it all. God always, and each other always. Know how good we have it, and live like it, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful, wonderful privilege and honour that even now we can come into your presence and to pray to you because of what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, help us to be that people, the people who will not, not at all shrink away in any way. Let us, Lord, to consider how we are to love, how we're to hold fast to hope, and how we are to draw near in faith always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.